0: What's going on, Cole? Hey, what's up, man? How you doing?
1: Not too bad, are you? How are you today?
0: I'm doing pretty good.
1: That's good. Uh, We got a very, very busy show today. I even had to uh, write down a list of the topics today. So without further ado, we'll just get into it. And for once, and probably one of the rarest occasions, the White Sox are actually going to open our show today as they decided to go with Tony La Russa as the manager for the team going forward. Not only am I shocked that he was the hire given that he hasn't managed since 2011 and that he's approaching 80 years old. But I'm also shocked that Rick Renteria was let go after the season he had, considering he is one of three candidates in line to get manager of the year in the American League this year. What are your thoughts on the whole situation and just the hire in general?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's overall it's pretty surprising. Um, I mean, obviously we've talked in previous episodes, it sort of seemed like they were – building up to hiring him for a couple weeks, Larusa—that that is. Um, so, you know, it, it really seems to stem back to Reinsdorf regretting firing him, um, you know, when, when Hawk Harrelson was in the front office and they had some dissension in the late 80s. And it's like it's something he's held on to for over 30 years and wants to make it right, so to speak. So it's kind of strange, um, you know, how how it sort of came about. I mean, obviously, Tony Larusa hasn't really been on the managing radar at all in recent years, um, especially considering after he retired from the Cardinals, after the uh, Cardinals won the 2011 World Series, he had, you know, really a failed – Front office stint with the Diamondbacks. And it seems like a lot of the time he's been in the news and these past few years, it's been for him maybe railing on, you know, today's climate and baseball with the celebrations and, and trying to hu- uphold the old rules and whatnot. So it kind of came out of nowhere and, and, um, you know, definitely a surprising hire considering they have such a young. The White Sox have such a young, vibrant core group. You figure they would maybe go younger with a manager, because you know, I mean, they're they're going to be World Series contenders next year. But it's not like they're in this desperate win now mode. Um, you know, I mean, for for several years, they're really going to be, you know, a competitive team. Well, with all that being said, um, I I do have to say I was a little surprised with how, um, you know, deafening the uh, criticism of the hire was in sports media as a whole. Like, I mean, I understand, like, all the reasons I just listed are valid for wondering about the hire, but it's also... You know, it it was kind of like it was forgotten, like how good of a manager LaRusso was for so long. I mean, for over 20 years. So, you know, I mean, you can make the case that he's, you know, one of the top five managers ever, certainly top 10 uh, with what he did with the A's and the Cardinals. And, I mean, he went out on a high note winning a World Series in 2011 and arguably retired kind of early because his, his retiring kind of caught people off guard, so maybe he still has some left in the tank. Um, you know, as long as he is cool with, you know, the way the game is has kind of changed over the course of the past nine years and – You know, which he said some things supporting Tim Anderson and and some of the celebrations and whatnot. I don't really expect that to be an issue. Um, You know, I'm sure he'll adapt. I mean, adapt or perish. And, you know, it's not like he hasn't managed in 20 years. Like, baseball wasn't um, hugely different nine years ago. Uh, so I expect he'll adapt and, you know, it could end up being worthwhile. I mean, cause again, he's a great manager, certainly has, um, you know, about as good a pedigree as anybody you could ask who's who's looking to get back into managing this year. So, you know, maybe it'll be a hire that'll pan out. I mean, if they're looking to go to that, that next level and be true World Series contenders which they really haven't been since, you know, Ozzie Guillen was still the manager there, Uh, then maybe this will be the hire. Maybe they'll spend, you know, about three years or so with La Russa, and and he'll look to get the team over the hump, so to speak. And maybe it'll work out. I mean, I hope for his sake and for the White Sox sake that it does.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say, like, he was a very, like, obviously he was a very successful manager with the Cardinals, but, he kind of had his own way of doing things. Like he was very old school and kind of by the book, as opposed to a lot of the new managers who are all about analytics and things like that. And given how young the White Sox roster is, I'm kind of just curious to see how he can adapt to more of the analytics side of things, as opposed to just managing the old school way. We already know the White Sox have, declined options on Edwin Encarnacion and Gio Gonzalez, who I think are two players that would fit well with Larusa, given how they've been in baseball for a long time and kind of understand the way he wants to manage. But now it looks like the White Sox are also rumored to be in on both George Springer and James Paxton. Thoughts on those two?
0: Yeah, if they could get Springer, that would be huge. I mean, I've seen him mention with the Red Sox as well, you know, maybe one of the really big market team or um, really lucrative teams will go after him. But yeah, if you can get George Springer, who is, you know, a a true catalyst, I mean, he's really like the X factor for that uh, Astros lineup and obviously was a key piece in, in getting that team to be a world series contender in the first place. He and Altuve, um, yeah, if, if they could get him, that would be huge. You know, James Paxton's another promising, you know, promising player. Um, you know, he's a guy, he's, he's, he's a little older than it seems like he is. You know, he's 31, but um, obviously he had some great years with the Mariners. Uh, you know, kind of a, a forgettable Yankees tenure, especially due to injuries, but. You know, if, if he's a guy who can get back to pitching the way he was, you know, 2017, 2018, um, yeah, he could certainly bolster that rotation that already obviously has um, Keiko, Giolito, some other promising young pitchers. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they're going to be a – I can imagine they're going to be a hot commodity or a hot destination for – um, notable free agents for the next couple of years, uh, you know, like they were this pass-off season, really, with Keuchel kind of breaking the mold or going against the grain of what the media thought and um, and agreeing to join the White Sox. So, yeah, I mean, they're clearly in, you know, a win-now mode. I mean, even though they don't necessarily, it's not like it's, it's desperation. They're going to be in that mode for several years with that young core group they got. So, yeah, I mean, you know, again, with with Larusa, just to kind of finish up my points on that, yeah, the key, the key thing will be, like you said, if he can, you know, evolve into this, because that's the number one thing that's changed since he last managed was mm-hmm. reliance on analytics and the fact that the sort of old-school approach to using pitchers and – and different things like that um, has changed. But, you know, one thing for his sake is with all the A's and Cardinals teams he managed, he's kind of used to managing lineups where it's a lot of, you know, home runs and strikeouts. So he is kind of used to that. Um, Yeah, I just – a lot of the criticism I saw in the media brought up all kinds of stuff. It's like they threw the book at him. You know, I even saw criticism about – um you know the blaming him for the steroid use that was so rampant on some of those nineties a's teams, and obviously Mark McGuire, you know with a's and the cardinals, but yeah, just you know a, a lot of stuff that was brought up that that was kind of used against him um you know. Making it to where it's almost like he's he's going to be sort of an underdog going into the 2021 season. As strange as that sounds, so yeah, maybe it'll pan out. You know, maybe they'll get some uh, free agents here in the coming months, weeks, and months. And um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly going to be legitimate World Series contenders. So La Russa isn't going to have to worry about any type of rebuilding mode. It'll just be uh, win now mode.
1: Yeah, and while the White Sox appear to be on the verge of pretty much busting out, at least for the next couple of years, you have the Cubs who are kind of in the exact opposite situation where they kind of need to figure out what direction they want to go after this season, who to hang on to. We've already seen them pick up Anthony Rizzo's option, which was a no-brainer given the price tag on it. We saw them decline John Lester's option again, a no-brainer given what his option year was in terms of financial constraints. I'm not going to be shocked to see Lester and the Cubs work something out, whether it's for one more year, whether it's for two years, as long as they can make the price right. I'm just kind of looking at a lot of the free agents, and in in particular, the top 50 free agents that MLB.com put out. And of all the top 50 free agents, the only name that they have as a fit with the Cubs is Chris Archer at number 48. Archer obviously was drafted by the Cubs back in 2008 or 2009 before he was traded to the Rays in exchange for Matt Garza. I do like Archer. I don't think he's worth more than a one-year deal and as like a flyer deal, but are there any other like free agents out there that are possibly under the radar free agents that you wouldn't mind seeing the Cubs kind of pursue?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, Archer, you know, I know he was linked to the Cubs a couple of years ago with the trade deadline. So, You know, and obviously he had the lost season with injury. I mean, he's had injury issues really since he – late in the um, 2019 season. So, if he gets somehow returned to form, that would be cool to see him uh, maybe have a chance to rejuvenate his career with the – the cubs and um yeah like you said the cubs picking up rizzo's uh, everything they've done so far has been pretty predictable uh i like you hope that hope and think that they'll probably be able to work out something with lester for one or two more years um you know and rizzo picking up his option obviously made sense and congratulations to him and javi baez of course for winning the gold glove the other night um Rizzo's fourth, Baez's first, and as far as like under the radar of free agents, uh, you know it's interesting. I mean Paxton, I wonder if he's a guy who would be mentioned as joining the Cubs. Um, Taiwan Walker is a pretty is a guy in his late twenties who, you know, it, it he's he hasn't really seemed to reach that dominant form that he was maybe expected to. Um, in the mid twenty tens or so, but you know he's a he's a good solid right handed arm who they can maybe look at um you know if if they were gonna maybe look to replace Lester with somebody um with another veteran guy on maybe a short term deal, who knows maybe they could get Charlie Morton or someone like that to come on board. For a year. I mean, for me right now, I'm just curious as to what the approach is going to be overall. I mean, you know, not just like player under, you know, players they could look to add. Like, I just wonder what Epstein's mindset is going to be. Like, is it going to be him looking to just unload, you know, as much heavy salary as possible and and then kind of set them up to be big spenders again? next fall which you know whether or not he'll even be around for that or if he just passes you know the baton to Hoyer and goes somewhere else I don't know but like that's that's the key thing for me is you know it's like these past couple off seasons it's been especially off season it's really been just kind of looking to you know add a few veteran pieces here and there round out the bullpen and just go with what you got for another year but Based on all that he said in his end-of-year press conference, it does seem like we're going to have, you know, legitimate. Epstein's going to look to make legitimate changes this offseason for the first time in a while. So, yeah, they can just unload, you know, enough salary or clear up enough, you know, space, so to speak. I mean, I know there's no such thing as cap space but in baseball, but space in terms of what. Ricketts is willing to spend on um in order in terms of player personnel then yeah they could go after you know several notable free agents I'd be a you know all for it I mean I think we can both agree the key is getting um a true leadoff hitter number one specifically a, a proven guy you know not too old not too young a guy who can maybe play on the infield um who could maybe compete or or platoon with uh, Horner at second. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just going to be the key, you know, early on in free agency is seeing what the mentality is with Epstein, like if they can, you know, unload some of these big contracts or look to the trade market or, you know, whatnot, like in terms of, you know, how they're going to prepare for, you know, a twenty twenty one season that'll be around the corner before you know it.
1: Yeah, I don't see, I don't see Theo spending a ton of money this season, but I do see him spending more than in the seasons past, at least to try to help set up whether it's Jed Hoyer or whether it's somebody else. For if he does leave after next year, I don't think he's going to want to set the team up for failure because that's going to be kind of a bad look on his part for doing something like that. I've already kind of started to touch on some of the free agents that I would like the Cubs to go after on Cubs HQ with a couple of my posts this week. I've Today I, feed, I talked about Kirby Yates and how much of an addition he could be for the back end of the bullpen considering how the Cubs really haven't had that lockdown closer since Wade Davis and they only had him for the one year. Yates kind of gives him that lockdown closer mentality that he was looking for. And then same thing with um, Rick Porcello, who I kind of highlighted on Wednesday. Porcello kind of reminds me of when the Cubs brought in Jason Hamill back in 2015 and 2016, a guy that bounced around for much of his career, but for the most part was fairly successful. And then Hamill gets to the Cubs and has the two best years of his life those are kind of the signings I kind of see the Cubs going after guys that are kind of on the backside of 30, but they're still in that 32, 33 range where they still have a couple of years left. And then you can get them for one or two years and hope to get their final two years out of them before they kind of get to the downside of their career.
0: Yeah. Another, yeah. I mean, obviously, like you said, you know, Kirby Yates, uh, that's a, that's a good potential signing, but yeah, like you said, you know, Bolstering the bullpen will be key as well, because that's obviously been the one glaring weakness in terms of you know the job that Epstein has done since the Cubs won the World Series is rounding out the bullpen. Seems like every season since since then, it you know there have been middle relief questions, and yeah, obviously the Kimbrel acquisition didn't ne- hasn't necessarily panned out. Um, you know, I mean, he arguably looked significantly better. Uh, this this year is a setup man as opposed to the lockdown closer of old um, that the Cubs were expecting him to be. So, yeah, bullpen depth, you know, potentially adding a, a veteran guy to the rotation, especially if, if Lester's going to walk away. Um, and, yeah, prioritizing getting a leadoff man or or just – you know, getting some guys who can take walks, who can draw walks, who can get on base, um, just kind of moving away from the, you know, homer happy um, lineup, you know, strikeout, in, uh, strikeout inducing lineup of of recent years and, and looking to kind of rejuvenate thing, things there. But, yeah, I mean, I just hope that, you know, and would assume that Epstein would at the very least have it set up to where, you know, they'll have plenty to work with next fall. And he won't if he does decide to follow through on his, you know, ten year pledge to head somewhere else, then um, you know, after his ten years with the Cubs are up, then he won't leave the Cubs in a precarious situation. Um but yeah, I mean to me it's just gonna be a matter of Will they look to give David Ross one full season with this core that he's you know accustomed to from for the most part? Like obviously a lot of these those guys were still there or were there you know during the 2016 season uh, when Ross was obviously a catcher there? Or, or you know is Epstein going to look to rebuild or, or reload or retool so to speak uh, this off season?
1: Yeah, I think that I think Epstein will give. I think Epstein will go to Ross first and kind of ask Ross what his feelings are on it. I don't expect them to blow the team up, but I do think Ross is going to try to back this group at least for one more season with a normal off season, a normal regular season. If there is fans, I mean, even if there's not fans, at least playing the season out, 162 games is a normal season, so. If Ross has a chance to do that, I'm curious to see, but it'll just be interesting, I guess. It'll be more so I don't expect Theo to quit on the team. Like I don't expect him to just come in and not do anything to improve the team because that's not in his DNA. He's not built like that. He's built to put a winner on the field. That's what he's been known for. I think it's just going to be more so is he planning on putting a winner on the field this year, in terms of a team that's going to win ninety plus games, or is it going to be like one of those situations where the team he puts together this year is going to get eighty four, eighty three wins, something like that? But it's more so laying out the plan for whoever comes in sure. after
0: him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's going to be the key thing to look out for.
1: And now we'll head on to a football where this weekend was a very busy weekend. We'll start with the Bears and. I don't know what you even want to make of that game. Somehow that game ended up 26-23. Somehow that game ended up in overtime. I'm still trying to figure out how we got to overtime because the Bears' offense was, if you want to say atrocious, that's actually putting it lightly because they were just flat-out awful in that game. And Nick Foles had one good drive in the fourth quarter that brought the game to 23-20 outside of that. That team just – I don't know. That team is getting more frustrating to watch week by week. It's amazing that they're still sitting at 5-3 and and sitting in the position they are, but with Mitchell Trubisky now being injured with a shoulder injury, it's Nick Foles or Bust at this point for Chicago, and there's really nowhere to go but down, I think I can say, because that offense doesn't seem like it's going to be getting going anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to quickly touch on the Trubisky situation, I mean, obviously that kind of um, quelled any doubts as to whether or not Folds would be on the hot seat. Um, you know, Trubisky only comes in for one play—a a, three-yard run on um, by him. You know, on on Sunday, and evidently now he's got a—you know—pretty, you know, fairly serious in a way, of, um, or at least something that could turn into something very long-term or serious an injury that will at least shut him down for a few weeks. So, you know, who knows? He might not even really be right to take any snaps in the near future anyway. So it seems like it's definitely foals. It's foals or bust now, like you implied. So, uh, yeah, I mean, based on, you know, and as far as what happened on Sunday, um, yeah, I echo your sentiments in terms of I don't even really know what to make out of this game that game. I mean it is it is kind of funny and I know I've I've said this before, but it's like with Foles, it's strange. It's like when the pressure's on or he's playing, you know, behind or he comes in, you know, as a replacement starter or whatever. If it's some unique uh you know angsty situation, so to speak, it's almost like he's better than when it's just like a normal situation, you know, and he's the starting quarterback and, you know, it's the first quarter and they're looking to set the tone. It's like that's where he struggles the most because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he looked atrocious for most of the second half, but yet somehow they were able to, you know, put together a couple quality drives late in the game and Santos kicks the clutch field goal and they get it to overtime. You know, of course, as far as the Saints, I mean, they weren't, Drew Brees wasn't really able to air it out like usual because they had all those uh, injury issues and COVID issues um, to, you know, affecting the receiving core. So, uh, you know, that, that obviously worked to the Bears' advantage, but in the end, Saints able to get it done, but... Yeah, just an odd, odd game. I mean, you know, the running game too. I mean, the first quarter they couldn't bring the Saints couldn't bring. You know, who have a good, really good run defense, couldn't contain Montgomery. You know, couldn't bring him down. Excuse me. Um, you know, broken tackles left and right. But then, yeah, that just sort of, you know, d- dissipated in a way for most of the second half and the offense. You know, their the cameras showed the Allen Robinson and others over on the sideline looking dismayed. You know, Troy Aikman's on the broadcast, uh criticizing Foles at every turn and, and the lackluster offense. You know, they had a couple delay of games. Um yeah, I mean it was just, you know, pretty ugly, but that's just kind of how this Bears team is. I mean, just a smash mouth defense. Um you know, an underrated secondary, if you will. I almost feel like that secondary doesn't get the love it deserves on a national scale um, like the front seven does. But, uh, yeah, just a smash-mouth defense and an ugly, streaky offense that you just feel like is going to maybe turn a corner and settle into a rhythm but never really does. Um, But, you know, hopefully – you know, I mean, obviously the, the trade deadline came and gone, and they didn't really do um, – Bears didn't really seem to, to look for much. Um, obviously stood pat. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just what they're – you know, it's it's Nick Foles' job for the foreseeable future now that Trubisky's hurt. And we'll just have to see if they can pull out enough wins to get into the playoffs.
1: It's kind of funny how you mentioned that like Nick Foles, like when the pressure's on him, he seems to do better and than if he's like the bona fide starter by default. The good thing with base or with uh football outside of baseball is in baseball, when you pull out a starting pitcher, you can't bring that right. pitcher back in. And I know this would be kind of an unorthodox approach to go about it, but we've seen Nick Foles thrive in the fourth quarter. We've seen Nick Foles thrive when The game's on the line. Obviously, the Bears don't have that luxury right now because Mitchell Trubisky is hurt. But would you have been opposed to see situations where Trubisky starts every game, but then Foles comes in the second half and plays? Because it seems like when he's not counted on to be the guy is when you get the Nick Foles that everybody wants. Yeah, that would be an interesting
0: situation, kind of um, unprecedented in a way. Uh, you know, I, I know it's fun to think about something like that. Cause it, I mean, it really, it really does seem like I, I genuinely mean it. You know, going back to his Eagles tenure, it seems like Foles, his second go around with the Eagles. That is, it seems like Foles is just much more reliable, much more trustworthy as a passer, or at least as you know, um, leading the offense when he is playing with pressure applied. So, yeah, I mean, that is an interesting situation to think about if they were to go with Trubisky and, and maybe bring Foles in as sort of like a a platoon quarterback situation. Um, I mean, if Trubisky hadn't gotten hurt, I would certainly be in favor of them, you know, maybe looking to get him re in the offense these next couple games. Because, you know, they're about to go up against a Titans team that has a high-flying offense, so that's not really going to be a game where they can look to, you know, just just score, you know, hit frenetically and, and just rely on their defense to kind of help keep them in the game. They're going to really have to be up for it offensively. You know, and it's just been kind of interesting. Like, the, obviously, the comments Foles made that went viral about kind of questioning – Nagy's play calling and and maybe kind of sort of throwing the um, offensive line under the bus. At least that's what Nagy kind of implied it did. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, of course now they're dealing with offensive line uh, injury issues and COVID issues to boot. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it would certainly be worthwhile to get Trubisky more involved if not for the injury. So, but now, you know, based on what I've read about it, uh, you know, who knows? He might not be ready to to, you know, go under center until uh the end of the month. So I think right now it's just gonna have to be hoping that Foles can, you know, just somehow settle into a rhythm and, and be, you know, the best that he can be, which we've seen at times with the Bears. And, you know, just hoping that like we've said from the beginning of the season, just hoping that the Bears can find enough wins to uh, get into the playoffs.
1: And then, yeah, talk about – we're going to talk about the game against uh, Tennessee on Sunday. Um, Tennessee is one of the rare teams in football that is going to rely on the run, and they're one of those teams that you know exactly what's coming, and nine times out of ten you can't stop it because their running back is like seven feet, 300 pounds and runs like a 4 forty. So when Derrick Henry gets going, you know, it's going to be a long day. And the Bears, obviously the key for them to win on Sunday is they need to key in on Derrick Henry and they got to make life as miserable as possible for him. Yes, he's going to get his yards because I I've said this since last season. I think it's physically impossible to stop Derrick Henry considering his skill set, but you can contain him and limit him to what he can do offensively. But even at that point, ever since Ryan Tannehill has gotten to Tennessee, he's actually turned himself into a fairly decent quarterback and is a much better passer than I think what people realize for because that got lost when he was in Miami. The Bears are not going to have an easy game this week. They, As much as they want to focus on Derrick Henry and take him out, they still have to take into account that Ryan Tannehill does have the weapons on the outside that he can beat him through the air as well
0: yeah i mean it's gonna be tough you know and obviously the titans have had um an interesting week to say the least it's almost like they're really or mike vrabel is is really concerned with their play these past couple weeks of course they lost two in a row and they let go of a couple notable veteran defensive players and um You know, it seems like they're looking to to regroup this week and will be playing with extra incentive to get back on the winning track. And, yeah, containing Henry will obviously be the key, like you said. You know, if if the Bears are up for the job, which I think they are, but, you know, Henry's is such a freak of nature. I mean, he's like something straight out of a comic book or something with the way he's built and the – way he runs and how hard he is to bring down. Um, but, yeah, the Bears are just going to, you know, keep going to have to keep relying on that um, intense defensive pressure that they've utilized in recent weeks. I mean, the defense has obviously been consistently good throughout the season, and it's just going to be a matter of whether or not the offense can get clicking early on and, and keep up with the Titans.
1: If they do lose to Tennessee this weekend and fall to 5 and 4 would that cause you to kind of raise the red flag and worry a little bit or would you look at it more like this was the difficult part of the schedule that everyone talked about and it was only a matter of time until they started running into games where they were going to lose
0: Yeah, that would definitely be cause for concern. Um you know, especially considering and I think I've touched on this before and obviously the standings speak for themselves, but just how competitive and, and well rounded the NFC is as a whole. I mean, I think I've you know I've seen that um, the NFL is considering possibly expanding to eight playoff teams for this season. You know, it, due to the fact that you know the the COVID effects that that's had on you know and potentially planning for the possibility of games getting canceled and not being able to be made up late in the season. So that's something that would work out in the Bears' favor. But, yeah, I mean, getting through the difficult portion of the season is one way to look at it. But if they were to lose three in a row, um, and another thing is how they play this weekend. Like if it's like it's been these past two games where it's a shoddy, lackluster, uh, wishy-washy offensive performance, yeah, it'll certainly be cause for concern. You know, because then they'll have um, the Monday night game at home against the Vikings, which is winnable, followed by a bye, um, then at Green Bay on Sunday night football, which will be really tough, of course. Uh, but, you know, I would say that most of their games the rest of the way after this weekend are certainly very winnable. Um So, you know, it it won't necessarily be panic mode, but it'll, you know, losing three in a row, it'll definitely be cause to uh, raise the red flag and be concerned for sure.
1: And while you have the Bears kind of going in the opposite direction in terms of where they started, we do have two college football teams in the state of Illinois that Uh, well, one in Illinois and one just outside of Illinois that are heading in great directions. We'll start with Northwestern this week, and Northwestern came into Iowa, and they came ready to play again last week. Um, Their defense showed up. They limited the Hawkeyes to just 20 points. They had a (laughs) game-sealing interception late in the fourth quarter, and despite Peyton Ramsey not playing at the level that I know he wanted to play, Northwestern is 2-0. Their defense has proven to be a very good defensive unit this year. Their offense is going to be hit or miss. But Wisconsin Badgers have now had two consecutive games canceled because of COVID. And they have that matchup with the Badgers in three weeks where they have Nebraska this week followed by Purdue where Northwestern could be 4-0 and heading into that game against Wisconsin. That game right there could decide who represents the Big Ten West in terms of the Big Ten Championship.
0: Game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we just got to hope that we get there, you know, <laughs> that, it's, that it's able to uh, take place. I, I feel so bad for Wisconsin's players and coaches and administrators, fans. I mean, obviously that's such a tough situation that, you know, we – I mean, I don't need to rehash what we've already discussed last week, but obviously the Big Ten is just – you know, put itself in a precarious spot. In Wisconsin, you know, it's so sickening for them because not only are they, uh, you know, obviously the front runner to win um, the Big Ten West and get to the Big Ten title game, but you know, they're uh, a legitimate college football playoff contender. I mean, obviously, we had the Big Three in Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State, but you know, they could easily be that fourth fourth team. So. You just gotta hope that they're able to um you know keep their hopes alive. They can't really they can't afford to miss another game after this weekend. Um, because they won't be they will no longer be eligible for the to reach the Big Ten Championship. So um just gotta hope that you know, that they'll be able to get back to playing next week. Um and as far as Northwestern, yeah, anytime you're able to win at Iowa, you know, that's obviously, a, especially early in the season before you're able to really settle into a groove, that's obviously a huge plus. Um, you know, it's safe to say that Northwestern is is back to uh, the Northwestern of, of recent years with the exception of last year, which obviously they were terrible. Um, yeah, Ramsey, you know, not necessarily doing uh, – not necessarily living up to the billing coming off of outstanding performance against Maryland, but, you know, great defensive performance. I mean, and that's what we can, we've come to expect with Pat Fitzgerald coach teams when it seems like they do go on the road and pull off a big win. Um, it's, it's usually a, kind of a low scoring defensive oriented game, defense oriented game such as that. So, yeah, kudos to them for starting off 2-0. and And, yeah, I mean it really looks like they've turned this thing around. I mean, got to expect that they will certainly be in the running for winning the Big Ten West, which I don't necessarily think that a lot of people outside of maybe Big Ten country could have seen coming uh, prior to this season. So, um, yeah, it looks like Northwestern is is back for sure.
1: And then moving a little bit east of the border to South Bend, we'll find Notre Dame where, yes, they're an Indiana-based team, but they do have a lot of Chicago fans that represent Notre Dame. And I was kind of skeptical when Notre Dame wanted to join the ACC for football this year, mainly because I didn't know how they were going to stack up against some of those teams. We've seen them annually schedule – games with, like, USC, Michigan, Michigan State, and kind of, like, their general rivals that they always schedule themselves against. But through six games, Notre Dame is proving that they belong in that conference. They're proving that they can play in that conference. And this Saturday night is the big one for Notre Dame. They get number one Clemson in South Bend and a number one Clemson team that will not have Trevor Lawrence. Notre Dame, I honestly think... Is going to take down Clemson this weekend, and I think Notre Dame will be the front runners to win the wow. ACC after this weekend.
0: Well, um...
1: I know you're from Clemson. <laughs> I had to throw that out there, but not having Trevor Lawrence, I think, is going to be a very tall task to go into South Bend because I do right. like the way as Notre I
0: as I broadcast this podcast from within walking distance of the campus. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know. Clemson, you know, here in Clemson, our our world was kind of turned upside down with Trevor Lawrence's positive COVID test, you know, kind of like a nightmare come true. We were hoping we could just get through Notre Dame before um, you know, we could hope we were hoping I shouldn't say we on this, but we were hoping the Tigers could get through uh, at least the big the big Notre Dame weekend without having to deal with any um COVID setbacks, but you know, here it is. And obviously he had a had a tough test against Boston College and DJ Ungalele's first start, but you know, DJ played well. Um, you know, you can't really blame anything on him as far as that first half deficit that Clemson faced, which was his first significant halftime deficit at home in quite some time. And but they were able to pull it out in the second half. You know, these past couple games, they've suffered really a lot of kind of freak, you know, blown up plays and special teams mistakes, and that sort of contributed to the closeness in the first half of of the Syracuse game and the Boston College game. So I'm hoping that, or um, I'm hoping for their sake that they'll be able to avoid that, uh, you know, and, and make it a clean you know, super competitive game in South Bend. You know, it is going to be a big test for Clemson. I mean, Clemson hasn't lost a regular season game in over three years, Um, you know, and this is going to be, you know, their biggest regular season test in quite some time. Uh, Obviously, it's going to be Onglele under the bright lights for the very first time as a collegiate quarterback. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that Notre Dame defense is stacked and has played very well all season. Offense has been a little inconsistent. Ian Book's been a little consistent at quarterback. You, you know, they've had some shaky. Uh, I mean, I guess they're kind of like the Bears in a way. It's like sometimes they can turn it on and be amazing, and other times it's, it's you know, they really struggle to settle into a groove. Um, you know, I tend to lean toward Clemson in this one just because I think, You know, they've gotten so many big wins under pressure in recent years, and uh, I'm confident Dabo will have them ready to compete. And, you know, based on what I saw against Boston College, based on how Ungalele performed, you know, I think that uh, he's going to be up for the task, Um, you know, and again, based on sort of some of the offensive inconsistency from Notre Dame this year you know, they're going to have their work cut out for them going up against Clemson's defense. But for what is worth, you know, Tyler Davis, who's arguably Clemson's best uh, defensive lineman, he's going to be out yet again. He's missed a couple games now. Uh, Mike Jones Jr., one of their best linebackers, is going to be out. Um, So that's certainly not going to work in Clemson's favor. But, um, yeah, it's it's certainly Clemson's, you know, toughest regular season test again that they've had in quite some time um hopefully trevor will be able to travel which i think clemson's hoping is planning for and and be on the sideline and be sort of a an assistant coach and assistant quarterbacks coach for dj to offer some leadership there and you know, just for his sake, I mean, I hate it for him that he's that he's having to miss out on games in the midst of what could be a Heisman winning season. But, yeah, that has the potential to be the biggest game of the season so far, maybe the biggest game when it's all said and done of the regular season, especially considering that uh, Bama, Georgia, a few weeks ago, didn't really live up to the billing. But, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I, I can't necessarily pick against Clemson because they you know, they've proven to be up for the task in, in ACC play for, for so many years now, um, especially when, you know, the pressure's on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Notre Dame should certainly be looking to come away for, with a win, for sure.
1: Yeah, I love DJ Ugalele. i followed him since he was at St. John Bosco a couple of years ago, even when he was backing up Riel Mitchell during those good seasons. But, this is the reason why I hate the independent teams in college football. Notre Dame's been part of the ACC now in college mm-hmm. basketball for I think 7 or 8 years. I can't remember when they joined the ACC and I've been one of the big proponents of just eliminating the independent conference for college football and if you're in the ACC for basketball, you should be in the ACC for football as well. Notre Dame literally schedules the same teams every single year because mm-hmm. they have like all the rivalries with them which that's fine with Andy, but when you look at the teams that Notre Dame schedules, of course they should beat 90% of those teams on their schedule because they are a better team. That's why I want them in this ACC conference. I want them to go up against the likes of Clemson and the likes of Louisville when Louisville's good and when Florida State and Miami are in the top 25. It just gives Notre Dame more tests, and I wouldn't be surprised if, obviously, I don't think it's going to happen next year, but. Even if Notre Dame loses to Clemson on Saturday, but they're very competitive against Clemson, I wouldn't be surprised for Notre Dame to entertain the idea of joining the ACC.
0: Well, I'm glad you feel that way, because I can say, as somebody who has lived in uh, South Carolina my whole life, and you know, I can speak on behalf of us in ACC country and say that we, you know really want Notre Dame to take that leap and and walk away from their big TV contract with NBC and join the ACC. I mean, it'll be better for the conference. It'll be better for Notre Dame, really, in the long run. And it'll obviously be better for, um, you know, college football. And and just ACC play being boosted will help college football as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I think is – kind of antiquated in a way and I could talk about you know I could I could ran on this for probably far too long but you know we could even look at um, Notre Dame's performance against Clemson in the Cotton Bowl a couple years ago where I think it's safe to say that Georgia would have probably been the better team to get into the playoff based on what we saw in that game Notre Dame wasn't up for the task at all. We could even look at how Notre Dame performed in the Manti-Teao year against um, Alabama in the national championship when Alabama beat the brakes off of them. We could point to some of these big bowl performances from the past decade or so where Notre Dame has laid an egg, so to speak, and we could possibly point to them being overrated or or their great record not really being indicative of, of what they really are due to the fact that, like you said i mean it's this thing where you schedule these same you know opponents you're familiar with uh you know and and just kind of relying on your NBC tv contract to keep you independent and the fact that you know they're arguably historically the you know one of the all greatest programs of all time if not the greatest so, yeah, they have those rivalries with Stanford, Southern Cal, Michigan, Michigan State, Northwestern, Purdue, and it's just kind of like the same teams every year, you know, but yet meanwhile they're competing for ACC championships and literally every other sport um, except hockey. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, you, you would like for them – um, you know, really, I, I feel like most college football fans who aren't necessarily diehard Notre Dame fans would like for them to join the ACC, be part of a conference, have a regular conference slate, really help bolster the ACC and and give, you know, Clemson somebody to really be a big time competitor who can, you know, maybe uh, break, the, break the streak here of Clemson dominating the ACC in recent seasons. Um, and offer and mix things up. So, uh, yeah, I would certainly like for them to join. You know, I was rubbing my hands together when I saw that they were going to be eligible for the ACC championship because, you know, I, I kind of assumed that maybe if they were able to get a taste of what it was like for competing for a conference championship, which obviously that program knows nothing about because of their long running independent streak. Um, then maybe they'll want to just jump ship and, and, you know, leave the independent life. And obviously they would have to say goodbye to their NBC TV deal when, you know, considering they would be part of a conference with his own TV deal. And, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, if they can say goodbye to that money from the TV contract and, and be part of the ACC, It'll be much better for that football program in the long term. I really feel that way.
1: I mean, they're already playing, oh like, God. Boston College annually. They they played Syracuse recently. Yeah. They played Florida State. So it's not like they don't play ACC teams. And when you're in the ACC, you get nine conference games and, like, three non-conference games. They could still schedule Michigan, Michigan State, and USC. So it's not like leaving independent to go to ACC would permanently cripple who they schedule. It's just more of, like you said, not having that TV contract anymore, obviously, but going from NBC to ESPN and ABC and all these primetime games is also going to help Notre Dame in terms of recruiting, even though they don't hurt in that aspect. But they could start competing with teams like Ohio State and Michigan where instead of losing five-star recruits, they might start getting them because of those primetime definitely. I
0: mean, you know, obviously they would be part of the – you know acc network family which is a is a you know the acc like the sec and and other conference has its own network that launched last year and has a lot of big matchups on it but yeah i mean just like you said the big thing will be having more you know abc espn games which they get their fair share of you know now i mean it's not like nbc hogs all of notre dame's big matchups but um Yeah, I just think, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, from a competitiveness standpoint, from just the fact that, you know, it'll a respectability standpoint is like they've come under fire a lot in recent years for for fans and critics alike saying that, you know, that, that the schedule they play where. I mean, and to be fair, like, you know, I, I I said, like, they're used to these opponents playing year after year. Well, so obviously does a conference slate. But, you know, from Notre Dame's standpoint, when it's a little different from a conference where, you know, they may switch up, like, the uh, non-division opponents that you play each year, which, of course, they do, and then you play the light division opponents, um you know and the a c c uh has an eight game conference slate, so you know no- Notre Dame would still have several opportunities to keep um some of those rivalries alive while also having the element of of conference parity and not you know being at the mercy of schedule makers like like every other um you know college football team is it's it's not independent and just you know having the ability to compete for you know a conference championship, which is so key. I mean, you look at it in the early days of the or the first year especially of the college football playoff, how it uh, hurt the Big 12 not having a championship game and not having like an outright conference winner. And but meanwhile, Notre Dame's been able to kind of coast scot-free and you know, be considered a, a college football playoff. Uh, worthy team and obviously got in a couple years ago and got crushed by Clemson and you just feel like it would be more fair um, you know and and more competitive and just you know better for college football and better for Notre Dame in the long run if they were just part of a conference wholeheartedly so yeah I, I definitely hope like you that they will use this, this taste of ACC play this year um, and choose to, you know, and and choose to join the ACC as a full-time member in football.
1: Well, Notre Dame is a team that experienced the college football playoff once before a team that probably will not be experiencing that for any time in the near future is Illinois. Um, I know they made significant strides as a program last year with Lovey Smith, and there was, I think, more optimism heading into this season than in seasons past. But through two games, Illinois has really been dealt, I would say, the toughest card in the Big Ten in more ways than one. The first game of the season, you go to Madison and get your doors blown off by the freshman quarterback, Graham Mertz. You get through most of the week until the end of the week, and you find out that you do have – players that are dealing with COVID, so you were kind of on the fence about playing that game against Purdue. Fell behind big early against Purdue, but battled back and lost by seven. And now this week, you get a very angry Minnesota team that's not only 0-2, but they took the loss. Yeah,
0: and a thriller. I think Maryland last
1: week, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, One point loss to Maryland last week, which is really going to rub PJ Fleck the wrong way, especially for a team that... Last year was yeah, I way mean, the Big Ten. Title Minnesota
0: game. definitely, is, especially defensively, has is, is, uh, been lackluster to start the year. And it also didn't help matters that after Michigan's offense looked so great against Minnesota, week one of the Big Ten season, of course, Minnesota laid an egg against Michigan State uh, this past weekend. So, yeah, and, and like you said, Maryland and Tua's little brother pulling out the thrilling win. Uh, against Minnesota in week two. So, yeah, you have to figure that Minnesota will be um, extra fired up to, you know, put a win in the win column um, this week and then avoid starting off 0-3. And, yeah, just Illinois bad luck. You know, obviously Brandon Peters um, taking the brunt of, of the COVID scourge and, you know, obviously uh, COVID affecting – you know, the team that Illinois was able to field field against Purdue, um, which was a a winnable game for them under normal circumstances. And Purdue, you know, even with Rondell Moore's weird situation, which we touched on last week, David Bell has really stepped up and proven to be, you know, one of the top sophomore wideouts in the country. So um, he helped – Purdue come away with a win there and yeah I'm afraid it looks like it it might end up being just a disappointing all-around season to forget for Illinois uh unfortunately for them and uh but yeah you know maybe maybe with Minnesota's defensive struggles Illinois will be able to to come you know make some magic happen and come away with a win at home this weekend um you know either way somebody's gonna have to be 0-3, Owen oh, 3 um I would kind of hedge my bets on it being Illinois but um who knows maybe they can they can get something going cuz Minnesota has are, has definitely after they were sort of the Cinderella team last year the the CFP Cinderella team throughout most of the regular season um yeah they're they're definitely not looking like they're going to be all that competitive this season
1: Then the final college football team in Illinois actually kicked off their abbreviated six game schedule last night as the MAC conference kicked off yesterday mm-hmm. with some MACTION, as they always call it during the week. And Northern Illinois opened the season against one of the conference favorites in Buffalo. And you can clearly see who the conference favorite is early on as Buffalo not only got off to an early lead, but they just looked extremely well balanced last night they looked extremely kind of prepared as opposed to Northern Illinois really didn't get much going until late in the fourth quarter and by that time it was already 49 to like 10 at that point so I don't really know what to make on Northern Illinois season yet just because they were one game in but it is only a six game season so for them to look as bad as they did outside out of the gates for their first game it does kind of concern me for their potential of what they Yeah, for
0: sure, especially done. after a disappointing season last year in which they um, weren't even bowl eligible, which is, you know, sup- which is definitely uh, disappointing for, you know, what we come to expect from NIU football in recent years. Um they, you know, they're just two years removed from winning the MAC title, so the MAC Championship game. So yeah, they got you know Thomas Hammock as their head coach this is his second year on the job. Um, but yeah, based on what we saw in the opener, uh, they might not be in the running to uh, compete for the MAC title, but who knows? Maybe they will. But yeah, Buffalo, like you said, I mean that offense looked great. Um, they're certainly they're certainly a front runner to win the MAC. Um, and yeah, you just you know it's obviously the season's just now getting started. And then after all the craziness with, with, you know, obviously uh, Mac football getting canceled and then the late start now, um, I guess the PAC 12 is going to be the only conference that starts a little bit later than the Mac. Um, so I'm just, you know, happy for all of, for their sake that, that they're getting to play. And um NIU will get to stay at home and take on Central Michigan next week, which obviously is a which is definitely a game I should say definitely a game that they should um, look to win to move to one and one. But uh, yeah, impressed with Buffalo, and uh, for Northern Illinois, just hoping they can you know get back to to being a competitive team in the MAC after a a lackluster 2019 season.
1: And then switching over to European-style football, which we call soccer here, Um, we're on the verge of Decision Day in the MLS this weekend. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with Decision Day, what that basically is, it's the final day of the regular season. All teams play their last game on that day, and it basically decides playoff seating, playoff positionings, and things like that. Chicago Fire came into this week needing – four points in their final two games to clinch a spot on their own without needing help. And they missed a golden opportunity last night to get three points. They had a two nothing lead on Minnesota with about 28 minutes left. And they let Minnesota tie things at two. Then it looked like Chicago was going to win the game an extra time when Robert Barrett got a late goal in extra time, which was later ruled offside. Once again, they walk away with one point instead of three they still hold that final playoff position heading into Sunday's contest against New York City FC, but now instead of needing only one point on Sunday, they need at least three points to clinch on their own, and New York is one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, so it's not going to be home sweet home, I don't think. It's going to be more of a struggle yeah, for than sure. I think Chicago have I've been before.
0: pretty complimentary of most of their draws, which they've had a lot of draws since we – started this podcast, but that was a pretty disappointing one, like you said. Um, I mean, I know Minnesota's obviously a good team. They'll be in the postseason. Uh, but, you know, to, to blow that 2 nil lead and waste some opportunities toward the end to, to pick up a win, that's um, pretty disappointing. But, you know, again, I mean, based on how far they've come, it's just kind of impressive that Chicago's in this position. Uh, And, you know, like you said, they're going to have their work cut out for them on decision day against NYFC to just be able to get to the postseason. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all it's all led up to this. I mean, they've at least done the work to uh, put themselves in a position to take advantage of that expanded postseason in the Eastern Conference and, and, you know, be able to get in. So. You know, they pulled out some impressive uh, performances against, team, against you know, teams that are far superior to them in recent weeks. Let's see if they can pull out another one on Sunday.
1: If there's any, I guess, silver lining to take away heading into that game on Sunday, it's the fact that Chicago is playing at home. And I've kind of been looking back since Ponovic was the head coach when he started five years ago before the Rafi Wiki got in. And over the last five years, the Chicago Fire actually have the fifth best record at home in the MLS. But they have the worst record on the road. They've won zero road games this year, and they've won a total of uh, seven games on the road in the past five years, which clearly is not going to get it done. But yet they still somehow made the playoffs back in 2017, mainly because they had one of the best records at home. This game is at home on Sunday which that's where they want to play anybody but they got to figure out how to win on the road and draws are only draws do help on the road but eventually you got to find a way to finish games on the road because even if they take care of New York this weekend they're yeah, going to be on the road I mean, that first playoff I think
0: game. I you know surmised that they were a much better home team but I did not realize just how Uh, dire (laughs) based on those stats you told me how dire the uh, road performance had been or or just how much parity it was between their performances at home versus away so yeah I mean you know obviously if if they do get in they'll be one of the lower seeds in the east so they're gonna have to figure out how to string together goals on the road but um, yeah I mean you know that I guess that really makes it all the more important that they're getting to finish out the regular season at home. Um, yeah, I mean, just getting to the postseason will be a, a victory in and of itself. Um, so we'll just, you know, we'll just have to see if they're up, up to the task.
1: And New York is actually – I mean, you could honestly say New York really could – take Sunday off if they wanted to because they right now are the 5th seed in the mm. East. They can't drop any lower mm. than the 5th seed but they are, two point, they are two points out of the 4th seed so if they win they can move up to the 4th seed but New York's pretty much put in the playoffs position where they're going to stay. They're going to get at least one home game in that first round they're going to play but they have a chance to move up where they could potentially get two home games but if New York really wanted to rest some of their players on Sunday, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. Mainly because they really can't go anywhere else in the standings. They can't drop any lower than where they are. And if they win, they still have to hope the Columbus crew lose. Otherwise, Yeah, they
0: maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe that's either. what, you know, that'll be something that the fire can kind of hope for is that they, they won't necessarily be eager for a win or, or playing an aggressive Uh, style looking for goals and that the fire will be able to take advantage of that.
1: Uh, Last two topics we're going to touch on today are the Chicago Bulls and Chicago Blackhawks briefly. uh, We'll start with the Bulls and Billy Donovan has started to round out his coaching staff for next year. And I believe he's actually finished rounding out who he wants. Uh, Obviously he kept Chris Fleming from the previous staff on there because Fleming did a lot of the Orlando workouts with the team during COVID. So the team kind of has that familiarity with him. They kind of have that respect for him and they just kind of wanted that unity with him. Uh, Maurice Cheeks coming in was no surprise there. Cheeks has been working with him in Oklahoma city the last several years. And that was pretty much a dead giveaway that he'd be joining him in Chicago this year. But the other two hires that Donovan, man i was actually kind of surprised um i forgot the guy's name from philadelphia that he brought in. i think his last name was Bryant, but i'm not surprised to see him come over mainly because doc rivers is going to try to bring in his own staff in philadelphia too so he was kind of maybe that odd man out or the odd coach out but one coach i'm surprised to see is that josh Longstaff from the bucks and i don't know a lot about him but i guess this is more of a one of those moves to kind of move him higher up on the bench in terms of assistant rates. But how far down on the bench is he going to be in Chicago? He's going to be behind Maurice Cheeks and probably Chris Fleming. So was that really a lateral move for him? It was – does that move kind of surprise Yeah, me?
0: I mean, I guess. You know, I, I guess it's just something that, that he figures is better off for his career. I mean, obviously the Sixers coaching situation is, is kind of in flux at the moment in terms of what Doc Rivers is going to do. I don't know. I mean, I'll I'll certainly take it from for uh, Donovan's sake. I mean, I'm I'm pretty pleased with the uh, coaching staff. He's, he's been able to put together. Obviously, getting Mo Cheeks to join Chip there is is huge. Um, you know, the defensive acumen that he brings to the table is. You know, he has such a great track record as a as an assistant coach, and um, you know, he's been around the coaching game for a long time and obviously had a great playing career and his work well with Donovan. So, um, I was really pleased to see that. And, um, and I think I got my, my assistant coaches kind of mixed up there, but, uh, a John, yeah, John.
1: Coming. No, yeah. yeah. Brian, yeah, Brian spent his entire career with Philadelphia and he was with, um, I want to say he was, was Cheeks there right before Brown got uh,
0: there? Yeah, yeah.
1: I want to say Ryan was in the organization when Cheeks was there, but he was with the Delaware G League team at that point. And then when Brown took over is when he made the move to the NBA team and was second in line behind Ime Udoka, which Udoka probably would have gotten the head job if Doc didn't get fired. So I guess... Brian leaving makes a lot more sense just because of what you were saying, the Doc Rivers coaching staff. Is yeah, so, Mo to che- All right, so, yeah so, so just, just to there, clarify,
0: sorry, I kind of mixed up the, the names you were talking about. But, yeah, Mo Cheeks, just to clarify, yeah, who obviously was a great Sixers player back in the day with Dr. J and co. Yeah, he was the head coach um at the Sixers before – um Collins, Doug Collins came on board and obviously they had some good years there and, um, you know, and, and he had the Pistons job, but yeah, he's just, he has a good track record as an assistant with two different stints with the Thunder, um, and the Sixers going back to the nineties and, and, um, early two thousands, he had a good, he had a good run there as well. So uh, yeah, I mean I just really like that hire. And uh so Bryant coming over for the Sixers. I mean, again, I'll take it. It may be viewed as a as a lateral move. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, with the, the pedigree he has of working on that staff and the playoff experience. Sure, I'll take it. And then long staff, which is what you talked about as being a lateral move. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting um, hire for sure. I don't really know what all the decision-making went into it because um, it looks like the Bucks for the most part, are still going to have about the same coaching staff under Budenholzer. But, again, I'll take it from the standpoint of you know, Donovan looking to put together a well-rounded coaching staff it seems like a lot of these new head coaches are putting together deep coaching staffs. You know, look at what Nash is doing uh, in Brooklyn and the the deep coaching staff he's putting together, including working together with his former head coach and Mike D'Antoni, which would be interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, being able to get most weeks is a win in my book. And obviously the other guys seems like a plus considering the experience they have working with playoff Ready teams. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think it's safe to say that, you know, Donovan did a good job of putting together the staff. And uh, now the next thing to do is focus on the off season and the draft and look at uh, building up that roster.
1: And then we'll close out the show today with the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, There's not much going on in terms of Blackhawk news at the moment. I did a column today of kind of the state of where the Blackhawks are right now and kind of what to expect moving forward this year as they appear to be entering, I'm not going to say a full rebuild, which they were doing before when they got the Patrick Kane's and the Jonathan Taves, but I think it's more of like a – mini rebuild where they're trying to get younger in certain positions and just trying to establish more of a long-term success again. But the one thing I did forget about, and I'm pretty sure a lot of fans that don't follow hockey that close forgot about this as well, is the Seattle Kraken are coming into the league next year as Mm the 32nd NHL franchise. I love the name, I love the logo, so I probably will follow them as much as I follow the Blackhawks. But when they get to the point of joining, you're going to have the expansion draft, similar to what the Vegas Golden Knights had when they joined a couple of years ago. And the Blackhawks have a chance to unprotect some players, and they have a chance to protect some players that the Seattle Kraken cannot touch. Who in your mind do you feel on this team right now is one of those players that Chicago needs to protect so seattle that's a can't great that question
0: and that is also s- not something that it, it crossed my mind so i appreciate you uh bringing that up. that's a great point with seattle coming in obviously like you i'm looking forward to them i think the nickname and logo is awesome but yes that will bring up an expansion draft which is not something in this crazy time that it crossed my mind so in terms of the blackhawks approach to that you have to wonder who they will look to protect. I mean, will they look to protect some of the core veteran guys? I mean, will it? I I would I hope expect to. Patrick yeah. Kane
1: and Jonathan Taves. I expect I would expect I would expect one of them to be protected. I don't know if they both will. And I think that'll be more so how the team does this year. If the team does better than what people expect this year then maybe they hang on to both. If the team does kind of in the same level they were at last year, where if it wasn't for the expanded playoffs, they weren't going to get in. Maybe you trade Taves, yeah. maybe you trade Kane and then protect the other one. Or you just hold on to both of them till the end of the season and kind of look at where they're sitting in terms of contract status and, Cat money and whoever has more cat. That's a great point. That's that's just something I hadn't
0: really thought of. Maybe that's part of Stan Bowman's future planning is kind of setting himself up in advance of that of next year's expansion draft that um you know, that that he will be able to expend some more salary, so to speak, through uh you know, through that draft. So Um, And, yeah, the expansion draft, by the way, will be in June of this coming year. You know, we're assuming that um, if – assuming that the NHL does get started on around New Year's Day or on New Year's Day, which is what they're hoping for, that the season will be wrapped up around that time or close to ending at least. Uh, So, yeah, I guess a lot of how – you know, a lot of who – Um, Stan Bowman chooses to protect will revolve around how they perform this year. So hopefully for Taze and Kane's sake, they'll have, you know, one last playoff ride that'll maybe set themselves up to be a part of the team in the future. Or, you know, maybe that'll be it. Maybe it really will enter a full rebuilding phase after this year.
1: And as much as I like Jonathan Taves, I think he would be the one that is unprotected over Patrick Kane. And it goes back to what you brought up either last week or the week before where Taves was kind of questioning Bowman for trading Brendan Sod and kind of letting go of Corey Crawford. If Taves is already kind of questioning Stan Bowman's moves, that kind of might be, I hate to say it, a first-class ticket out of Chicago because Bowman's not going to want to keep anybody on that team that doesn't support him or yeah, doesn't believe and him that's what obviously
0: did. tough to think about because you know Taves has been really the leader of that group, the the glue guy throughout um, throughout their you know their three Stanley Cup runs. So but yeah they have a you know a young head coach and and you know a fairly uh, are, are likely going to have a fairly young roster with the exception of some of those veteran guys who are still holdovers from those great teams. So, yeah, maybe that will be instrumental to him, you know, taking his talents elsewhere and Stan Bowman starting with a an entire rebuild. But I guess we just got to wait to see how they do this coming season.
1: No, it was a little bit longer today, but we had a lot to discuss. But that's all the time we have for you today. Is there anything else that you want to add? For all listeners,
0: be sure to check out our websites. Check out Dustin's great articles, his great commentaries on our our family of Chicago Sports HQ websites. And uh, yeah, obviously got a lot a lot coming up with the NBA draft, and obviously continued um nfl season really big 10 country mac country you know football season is really just getting going so uh have that to look forward to as well
1: all right take her easy cole stay safe stay healthy enjoy the big one between right. clemson and notre dame this weekend since Send- I cannot watch the Badgers for another week. I'm probably going to be watching yeah, I hate Notre Dame it and Clemson, you, myself. Hopefully
0: the Badgers will be back at it next week. I appreciate it. I'm, uh, yeah, pretty nervous about Saturday, but it sh- should be a great game. Um, certainly it would be good for college football to have that big primetime matchup. So that's obviously something else to look forward to. All right, see you, man. Thanks. All right, take it easy. Talk next week.